Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, I was having a wonderful conversation with a listener back and forth via email, and it sparked this idea for today's episode. So I'm going to give the listener credit because it was really their argument that made me think this way. So with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say fairy, that'll be a single shot. And every time I say grim, that'll be a double shot. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, don your very best lederhosen, or dirndl, whichever one you prefer. Crank up the Volk's music, and grab a beer, as we dive into today's offering of Can Fairy Tales Be Based on a True Story? Or, is Snow White based on an actual historical figure? Dum, dum, dum. You know, I gotta throw some drama in there, because I can't help myself. All right. Marguerite von Waldeck was a beautiful Bavarian noblewoman who lived in the 16th century. She was the daughter of Philip IV of Waldeck-Wildungen and his first wife, Marguerite of Ostfriesland. I, I think you guys should just be impressed that I didn't screw up that whole sentence. I mean, seriously, I get thumbs up just for that. Anyways, she was born in 1533 and lived near the picturesque town of Wildungen in northwestern Germany. She was the second daughter of the couple, but her mother died when she was only four years old. Now, Marguerite's family owned several copper mines in the hills of Waldeck. First, her father owned them, and then later, her brother inherited the mines. In the Waldeck mines, just like they did elsewhere in Europe, a majority of the miners were children. Now, I promise you this is going to come up later on in the story, so you got to pay attention. Or don't. Either way. Doesn't matter. Crawl spaces in mines, seams, and shafts were frequently so small that only children could get through them. And due to this type of work, they were severely deformed so that they were often referred to as, you guessed it, dwarves. So I'm going somewhere with this, right? After her mother's death, her father decided to marry again. His new wife was named Katharina von Hatzfeld. 
she was a noble woman as well. So, finally, Marguerite got a stepmother. Although facts about their relationship are lost to time. But when she was roughly 16 or 17, Marguerite left home. Maybe because she and Katharina could not get along. Or her father and her new stepmother sent her away. But she did leave the family home in 1550. And she didn't just leave her home. Her family sent her to the court of Brussels to live under the care of Maria von Castellin with a specific objective in mind. His daughter needed a suitable husband. Traveling over the seven mountains of the Spissart, she arrived in Brussels, where Marguerite and her beauty caused quite the sensation. She settled in Brussels and soon attracted the attention of the future Philip II of Spain. The legends of history tell us that Philip fell in love with her and they became lovers. He wanted to marry this girl from Germany. However, Philip, like other European royals who sat on thrones, was expected to marry for political reasons, not love or infatuation. If love entered such a marriage of convenience, that emotion was a benefit, although one could not expect it. But fate had another plan. The union was forbidden by Philip's father because the king did not see any political value of the marriage, meaning Marguerite had nothing meaningful to offer Philip by way of a political alliance. And while still living in Brussels, Marguerite became extremely ill. People who knew her thought that she had been poisoned. And when she wrote her last will and testament, not long after falling sick, her handwriting seemed very shaky. Now, shaky handwriting can be the sign of someone with tremors. And among other causes, tremors are a sign of dum, 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 poisoning. Whatever her illness, Marguerite von Waldeck died in 1554. Although nobody knows exactly what killed Marguerite, we can rule out one suspect, her stepmother. Because her stepmother was already dead, she died eight years earlier in 1546. But let's go back a little bit to before Marguerite became sick and she was seeing Philip II of Spain. Marguerite's family was also against this relationship. Not just because she and her stepmother disliked each other, but because Marguerite had another suitor as well. His name was Lamoral. He was the Count of Egmont, but Marguerite didn't want to marry him. Someone who wanted to protect Prince Philip and his future throne, perhaps to harm Marguerite as well, made sure that no marriage would ever take place between the prince and the beauty from Germany. Maybe Philip's father, the King of Spain, who was dead set against this romance, got one of his men to murder her. But no one knows the truth. The only thing that we know is that Marguerite died at the tender age of 21. And most likely, she was poisoned and thus murdered. Her weakening health at her young age of 21 years supports this theory. The slow effect of the poison would explain the wasting away of her body. Although Marguerite was buried at the Franciscan Monastery in Brussels, her grave has disappeared without a trace since the church was dismantled in 1799 and the graves were torn up. But 
Let's see how well this fares. Because in the Grimm's Tale, Snow White survives the poisoning attacks by the Queen and lives happily ever after, not least because of the help of the dwarves who save her life repeatedly. Although one might think that the notion of dwarfs who slaved away in the mines from morning till evening to search for ore and gold, as written in the tale, is a purely fictitious idea, the popular fairy tale motif is not far-fetched from a gruesome reality, namely child labor. In the mining industry, as early as the 16th century, one can find child labor hidden under the pretense of apprenticeships. The boys began to work as Klauberbuben, mining apprentices. By the way, don't you just love the German language? Because Klauberbuben is like the, my favorite word right now, Klauberbuben. I'm going to say that like about a thousand times. <laughs> Anyways, so they were mining apprentices, usually between the ages of 10 and 12. A similar justification of employing children is used in the copper mines. Children between the ages of 13 and 14 have to retrieve the ore from the long walls of the miners. In doing so, they are getting acclimated to this hard work. They tie the rope of the mine cart loaded with ore. The Duchess Bergwotterbuch mit Belgian. By the way, my mom and my aunt told me how to pronounce that, and I promise you they're both rolling their eyes going, you did it wrong. Anyways, it means German Mountain Dictionary with Records from 1871, which was written by Heinrich Weith. And he states, Because of the location here, close to the Reichstadt coal mining taking place along stretches that are partially horizontal and fall partially by 5 to 10 degrees. For this reason, boys between the ages of 14 and 19 can be used advantageously for this type of work. Sander discovered that there is also a striking connection between child labor in the mines of Waldeck Wuldingen and Marguerite's family. In 1561, Marguerite's brother, Samuel, opened several copper, ore, and gold mines close to Waldeck, since mining was a lucrative business for the entire region. Only people of small growth were suitable candidates for this kind of hard labor, since the narrow tunnels were only about 30 inches in height. I'm just going to stop for a second. Think 30 inches. Like, seriously, if you're anything above four foot, you're already too tall for this mine. Okay, just saying. The tunnels are not higher than two and a half feet. It's a miserably sour work for the boys to bring forth the mining carts because they often have to crawl on their hands and feet to then push the mining carts in front of them. The employment of children and teenagers was a common practice because they were cheap day laborers who risked their health without any complaints. Many families lived in such poverty that the youngest had to earn an extra income below ground. Johann Philipp Rice states that over 200 poor children earned a living in the Hessian copper slate and cobalt mines of Regelsdorf. By researching the mining pay slips dated 1586 of a mine in the Principality of Waldeck, Sander was able to find the rubric Servants and Boys and a list of over 13 names. Even the lankiest boys must have suffered from the narrowness of the tunnels, constantly threatened by falling rocks since their woolen or leather headgear, the Google, by the way, it's not spelled that way, it's G-U-G-E-L, but oh my god, it's called a Google. How funny is that, right? It's a type of hood with a trailing point, provided very little protection to them. 
The labor below ground caused many chronic illnesses and physical deformities, not to mention the mental damages and psychological distress. The physical infirmity brought death to many of the young workers who were still in their developmental phases. Due to the lack of sunlight and hard work in awkward positions, the children's bodies gradually withered away and became stunted. Often they suffered from malnutrition and their faces were pale and emaciated. In a collection of reports on the physical and moral condition of the children and young persons employed in mines and manufactures dated 1843 by British commissioners, the children working in coal mines are described as chicken-breasted, crooked and short-legged, having a remarkably stunted appearance and frequently a crippled gait. A very specific description of a pit man is given as follows. His stature is diminutive, his figure disproportionate and misshapen, his legs being much bowed, his chest protruding, his cheeks being being generally hollow, and his brow overhanging. It's not a great description, I'm sorry to say it. Given that the children working in mines aged considerably faster than average, one can easily imagine that in the 16th century, when the miners came out of the mines with their headgear on, they must have looked like what we think dwarves look like. The book De Re Metallica, on the nature of metals and minerals, 1556, on German mining technology by German scholar George Bauer, contains numerous woodcuts depicting miners of the 16th century. Their resemblance to the notion of dwarves with beards and pointed caps is unmistakable. Another interesting parallel between the dwarfs of the Grimm's Tale and the miners from the Waldeck Veldungen area can be unearthed with regard to the unique communal living situation in a single living and bedroom space. In the version of the story from 1810, it is written, and I quote, As little Snow White entered the house, there was a table, and on the table seven plates with seven spoons, seven forks, seven knives, and seven glasses. And also in the room were seven small beds. End quote. In the 16th century, the miners of the small town Bergfrigheit usually shared one small house that was equipped only with the bare essentials because the miners' families lived too far away from the mine and a daily return home was just not feasible. The research reveals that Brigfreheit was the only mining village with miners' houses of a single room that combined the living area with the sleeping area. The unique architectural design of the houses, as well as the shared living community of the miners, resembles the living situation of the dwarves in Snow White. Between 1798 and 1841, the Grimms lived and worked about 30 years in Kassel, only 29 miles away from the towns of Bad Wildungen and Waldeck. It was during this time that they collected and revised their versions of Snow White. But who were the Grimms' main sources? What was the source story, and could it have been inspired by the legendary murder of Marguerite von Waldeck? How would this particular source story have reached the Grimm's, and if the Grimm's Snow White is based on Hessian sources, as they stated in their annotations, why is the title Schneewitchen written in Low German? To begin with, a note about the Grimm's title Schneewitchen, which is actually the title of Snow White. Although the tale itself was recorded in High German, the Grimm's used both forms in the first edition of 1812. 
in their annotations about the ori- of the origins of Snow White, the Grimms remarked, and I quote, Taken from many diverse Hessian stories, this fairy tale is one of the best known stories. The low German name of the fairy tale is maintained in areas where High German is spoken or distorted into Schliewitschen. Low German was also spoken in the 16th century in the Hessian principality of Waldeck, as we were able to prove by means of a dictionary from the region containing the translation of Sneevit to Schneevis. Anyways, that was interesting. While there is no evidence that Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm have ever visited Waldeck or the nearby city of Wildungen personally, a letter written by their sister Lottie confirms that she actually traveled in 1818 to Wildungen for a health spa and mineral water treatment. Since the health spa in Wildungen was a popular venue, it is not difficult to imagine that it attracted illustrious guests who would while away the time with drinking mineral water and entertaining conversations about the local area and its history. Lottie's letter indicates that she was accompanied by her brother Ludwig Emil Grimm, a painter who also contributed the frontispiece for the second edition of Kinder und Hans Marschen in 1819. I'm sorry, Mom. I know. I'm horrible at German. I, I try. Just just roll your eyes and, and tell me later. Right? Anyways, they moved in with Rosine Wilhelmin, who was married to Philip Muller, pharmacist and mayor of Wildungen. Rose was a fairy tale aficionada and maintained close contact with fairy tale collectors such as Marie Haspenflug and Pastor Ferdinand Siebert from Triesa. The Grimm, Wild, and Haspenflug households were not only bound together through their common interest in fairy tales, but also through marriages. While Lottie Grimm married Marie's brother, Ludwig Haspenflug, in 1822, Wilhelm Grimm married Rose's sister, Dorothea Wilde, in 1825. When exploring the question of how and when fairy tale source stories were swapped between the Grimm, Wilde, and Haspenflug families, it's important to understand that a very close relationship between the storytellers already developed soon after Wilhelm had returned to Castle from a six-month Berlin trip in December of 1809. Valerie Paradis describes the Hapsenflug sisters in this connection as a fairy tale think tank, and I love that she called them that. The ladies became steady members of the reading circle that met each week in the Grimm home. The salon had become a center for gatherings of the young, educated middle class of Castle. It brought Lottie Grimm and the women of the Wilded Hassenflug families together, and meaningful friendships developed around their delight in telling and remembering stories. Given the frequent exchanges of readings, fairy tales, legends, and other entertaining stories at the Grimm's home, it is conceivable that one of the young women also contributed the local story about the legendary death of Marguerite von Waldeck. Besides the statement that Snow White is based on many diverse Hessian sources, the Grimms identify the names Sebert and the Haspenflug as storytellers of the tale Snow White. Rolke remarks about the source of the tale, and he said, and I quote, 
uncertain since the story was already added in 1808 and was written down twice by Jacob Grimm. It probably goes back to the oral transmission of Marie Haspenflug. Besides Marie Haspenflug, Rolke assumes that Siebert contributed an alternative ending to the tale. While it is impossible to list with absolute certainty all contributors who provided the Grimmses with source stories and specific fairy tale motifs, the Grimms themselves indicated other variants of the Snow White canon that they were already familiar with. One example is the Italian literary fairy tale The Young Slave written by Giambattista Basile in his 1634 work The Pentamarone which contains the fairy tale motif of the glass coffin, here seven crystal chests. The Grimms not only listed five different beginnings of Snow White and a version that Jacob learned in 1850 during his stay in Vienna, but also made note of Johann Karl August Maus's Snow White variant Richeld in his Volksmarschen de Duchen. This particular story locates Snow White, here named Blanca, which of course means white in Brabant, when the jealous stepmother, the Countess of Brabant, Richald, consults her magic mirror, she asks, Mirror blink, mirror blank, spiegel blink, spiegel blank, golden mirror on the wall, golden spiegel on the wand, show me the most beautiful maid in Brabant. In contrast to the Grimm's Mausus names the existing location Brabant in his tale and defines a specific time period by referencing the Catholic saint Albertus Magnus who lived between 1200 and 1280. The fairy tale motifs in Mausus' Richald share striking commonalities with the motifs used in Grimm's Snow White. For example, a magic mirror, the dwarfs, three attempted murders of Blanca with poisoned objects, a pomegranate, soap, and a letter, and Richard's punishment of dancing in hot iron slippers. Interestingly, another Snow White variant preceded the Grimm's published tales in fall of 1808. German writer and politician Albert Lud Ludwig Grimm, not related to Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm, so not a Grimm brother or father or any relation, completed his collection of fairy tales and published it in 1809 under the title Kindermärchen. His Schneewitchen is a fairy tale play in 1057 verses. According to Albert Ludwig Grimm, the tale Schneewitchen is based on a popular folk tale of that name which varies greatly in various ways but had been changed by him in form. While this version shares some parallels with the Grimm's tale, such as the queen's hate for her stepdaughter and envy of her extraordinary beauty, the seven dwarfs, the murder attempt, and the poisoned figs, and a magic mirror. It also contains some significant differences. Like, for example, Snow White has a stepsister called Adelhild, who is banished into the magic mirror. A dwarf queen king rescues Snow, Snow White, and the punishment of the evil queen is to lie in a glass coffin for 99 times in 99 years. The brothers Grimm were not only aware of their competition, they also publicly frowned upon the work of their namesake. 
In a footnote of the preface to their first edition, they wrote, and I quote, But it has to be noted explicitly that a not-so-successful collection titled Kindermärchen, published in Heidelberg by a namesake A.L. Graham, has absolutely nothing in common with us and our collection, end quote. Well, they put quite the point on that, didn't they? The attempt at tracing the roots of a specific fairy tale in historical reality is a laborious undertaking, to say the very least. Few people have dared to do so, and among those who tried, even fewer approached the matter with a sincere scientific interest. Fairy tale parodists like Traxler and Bartles have intentionally mocked scholars and the general public with their professionally drawn up persiflages. But does that render every earnest intention to connect fairy tales with references in real history a priori futile? If we rule out the mere possibility of connections between fairy tales and real places and people in advance, then how do we justify the mentioning of the city Bremen in the fairy tale, The Town Musicians of Bremen? Or the heath nearby the city Boxtehood in The Hare and the Hedgehog? In his essay, Oral Tradition als Historisch Quell, Lutz Rorick calls the endeavor to historicize fairy tales foolish. He draws attention to the concerning fact that even if assumptions about fairy tales are far from historical reality, they are still spread in the media and serve as advertisement in the tourism industry. For example, the so-called Marchenstrasse in Germany. But this is an entirely different issue, and one can argue just the same that the tourism industry helps to promote the fairy tale, increases awareness of the genre, and fosters people's engagement with fairy tales on some level. Yet it is true that the increased propagation, oversimplification, and hyping of potentially false information about fairy tales by the media can be unsettling especially when such flawed information is combined with the effects of rukoplong, that is when stories, for example, fairy tales and legends, to the extent that grow, they grow in popularity and are mediated, find their way back again to the people and are being retold. Sabine winkler Pifo made a similar observation about fairy tale sensationalism in her review of Sanders' book, Sneewitchen, Machen oder Wir hat for the renowned fairy tale journal Marchenspiegel. Winker Pifo cites headings from German newspapers and tabloids, including the Bildzeitung, which sensationalized and decontextualized Sanders' research with headings such as Snow White Really Lived, But She Was Blonde, or Snow White Comes from Bildungen. Considering the facts that such kind of sensationalism can hardly be avoided in the age of internet memes and social media, it is even more so the responsibility of today's folklore scholars to educate the public about fairy tale and legend scholarship. Finally, what may be concluded from Sanders' research? What about the possibility that one of the numerous grim versions was influenced by a source story based on the historical figure Marguerite von Waldeck and her legendary death? One might be tempted to look no further than J.R.R. Tolkien's seminal lecture on fairy stories, delivered in 1939 and first published in 1947. Tolkien argues, Speaking of the history of stories, and especially of fairy stories, we may say that the pot of soup, the cauldron of story, has always been boiling. And to 
to it have continually been added new bits, dainty and undainty. For this reason, to take a casual example, the fact that a story resembling the one known as the Goose Girl is told in the 13th century of Bertha Broadfoot, mother of Charlemagne, really proves nothing either way. Neither that the story was in the 13th century, descending from Olympus or Asgard by way of an already legendary king of old, on its way to become a house Martian, nor that it was on its way up. Some key motifs of the Grimm's Snow White, such as the poisoning of a young, beautiful, aristocratic woman, reflect events and incidents that happened in real life. As the centuries passed, such historical occurrences may have indeed not only turned into legends, but also intermingled with fairy tale motifs, characters, and plot elements. So what does that mean when we're trying to distinguish between fairy tales and legends? So should fairy tales and legends be classified as distinctly, distinctly separate genres at all? Perhaps a rethinking is necessary of whether the narrow distinction between the two genres are overdrawn. Already, German scholar Martin Waller pointed to the fact that the legend of the White Lady, examined in his study De Wiese Frau, shares commonalities with the goddess Holda, which is also a prominent figure in the Grimm's fairy tale Frau Holle. In the foreword to their Deutsch Sagen, the Grimm's emphasized, and I quote, to try to debate the advantages of both genres would be inept. And even in this discussion of their divergence, one should neither overlook nor deny their common properties, nor the fact that they intermingle with one another in infinite combinations and intertwinings often resembling one another to a greater or lesser degree. The Grimm's were highly invested in collecting and preserving both legends and fairy tales. At the same time, they took great interest in their home state, Hesse, and researched its local history. Jakob remarked in an article about the names of Hessian towns, and I quote, He who loves his homeland also must be willing to understand it, and he who wants to understand it has to immerse himself in its history everywhere. Although the grim Snow White is a fairy tale figure from the realm of fantasy and imagination, the earthly destiny of Marguerite von Waldeck clings to her. By delving into the local history of 16th century Hesse, Sander has shed light in his research on existing places and connections of historical events. He's helped to disclose a possible murder of international dimension, explored child labor conditions in Hessian mines, and provided detailed background information on the family of Valdek. Lastly, he has established numerous connections between the Grimm's Snow White and the real-life history of Marguerite von Valdek thus establishing a platform for further research on a potentially Hessian source story. But in the end, who is it to decide which stories were written by life itself and which ones were purely fictional? And on that note, my darlings, we have come to the end of this episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time and reach out and share your thoughts about today's episode. I really enjoyed this one. I really loved thinking, can a fairy tale be true? Because you know what? When I was little, I always wanted to be Cinderella. Yes, that is where my love of shoes comes from. Sorry, Mom. You shouldn't have read that story to me. Now I just love shoes. Anyways. 
You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you want to share your thoughts on this episode or a previous episode, or you're just bored and you want to argue with me, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And you never know where that story thought might come from, just like this one. And on this, on that note, that's all the time I have for this evening. I thank you again for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.